Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5 is our text today. We are finishing our sermon series on the book of 1 John. Uh, This will be our last message in the series. We've been looking at this book since January. I think this is the 18th sermon in the series. And I think as uh, most of you know, this sermon series concludes in good time because uh, this Thursday I am flying to Chengdu, China to teach there next week. So I'll be away for a while and I'm going to take a week off when I return. So um, I will be gone for the next three Sundays. And as you know, our associate pastor, Pastor Brian, is on sabbatical. So that means the next three Sundays will be a little unusual here at New Life. Next week we will have a guy named Curtis McDaniel coming to preach. He's the RUF campus director at Purdue. RUF is called Reformed University Fellowship. It's kind of our denomination's version of crew, basically. And we have um, chapters there at IU and Purdue. So Curtis from Purdue will be here on July 1st. July 8th will be Jamie McGregor, an associate pastor at Redeemer. Presbyterian in downtown Indy. And then July 15th, Josh Hollowell, our church planner, will be back bringing the word and leading us in communion. So um, we look forward to uh, hearing from those men. I know they'll do a great job. So again, uh, this is not a Uh, an opportunity to disappear from church, okay? So for the next three Sundays, please come and and hear these men and come to worship and praise God, most importantly. Uh, The next series that we're going to begin is one that I'm calling Basic Training. We're going to take a few Sundays and look at the spiritual disciplines, um, what it is that God calls us to do in order to grow in our faith, scripture reading, prayer, fasting, worship, etc. That'll start July 22nd. Um, But again, today here, by God's grace, we are finishing this book of 1 John. There's always something for me anyway, kind of rewarding and uh, about finishing a a full book of uh, the scriptures. And I want to begin this morning here by just reviewing a little bit uh, what John has been trying to communicate to us. So this is a little bit of repetition. Hopefully you guys know these things, but Um, The purpose that John has written this book is to give assurance to Christians that they have eternal life. If you just look at verse 13, you'll see what he says here. This is like the thesis statement for this entire book. I write these things to you, John says, referring to everything he's written in this book, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's been the title of this sermon series, That You May Know. John didn't really write so that people would come to believe in Jesus and have eternal life, although that would be a wonderful result, but really his purpose in writing is so that those who already have eternal life would know that, would be assured of that, would not walk through life with this uncertain, uneasy, worried, frightened feeling about whether they really belong to God or not whether their sins are forgiven or not, whether they're going to heaven or not. John wants you to know that you have eternal life. And throughout this book, what he's been doing is giving us 
tests by which we can evaluate ourselves to see whether we truly are Christians. Because, you know, it's easy to just say, you know, sometimes we hear this message, just kind of say this magic formula phrase, receive Jesus into my heart, and, and, and you're in, and that's really nothing else to it. Uh, and we find a lot of people who say those words, but their lifestyles don't really match their profession of faith. I think you all know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you've wondered about those people, and maybe you've even wondered about yourself sometimes. And so John gives to us these tests by which we can evaluate ourselves. So here's the test that he has been giving, and these tests have been kind of recycled throughout the book. He's repeated them all several times. There's a moral test. John says that the one who says he loves God but doesn't have any interest in obeying his commands, that person is a liar. That, is, that person is not a Christian. There's a moral test, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5. He covers that. And then he also gives a social test. That is, he says, if you say that you're a Christian but you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have no affection for the church, well, that also is being a liar, being deceived. And so chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, he talks about this social test. And then he also gives a doctrinal test. That is, there are certain things that we need to believe about who Jesus is. We're not free to just make that up. Uh, who Jesus is is not dependent upon our opinion about who he is. He's been revealed in a particular way, and John wants us to know that and affirm that. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the God who has come and taken on flesh to live and die for sinners. Chapters 2, 4, and 5, he repeats these things. Now, let me be clear. John's not saying that these are things we do to earn our salvation. These are not things we do to earn our salvation, but they are evidences of someone who is genuinely and truly saved. Now, in these last few verses, verses 13 to 21, it's interesting how John brings all these three tests together to give us a final exhortation about the marks of true assurance. The person, the people with true assurance, they act, they live in a particular way. And that's what John tells us here in these verses. So let's stand for the reading of God's word as we finish 1 John, verses 13 through 21. John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death... He shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come 
and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. God, again, please bless the preaching of your word now by your spirit to the blessing of these dear people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so what are the marks of true assurance? How do people who have eternal life, true Christians who are assured of their spiritual state before God, how do they live, how do they act, what do they do? Now, um, this is not exhaustive, but here's a few things that John gives us. First of all, they are confident to pray. And this relates to the social diagnostic test. You'll see that in just a second. But they are confident to pray. Look at verse 14, okay? We, we talked about verse 13 already. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you might have assurance. And from that assurance then comes confidence and This is the confidence that we have toward him. Now, what does that confidence then lead us to do? Well, it's pretty clear. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So it's clear that John is talking about prayer here. That's what prayer is. We communicate with God. We ask certain things of God. Now, that verse, by the way, this is kind of a difficult passage. Maybe you noticed that as I read it. There's some things we have to untangle here, but here's the first little difficulty in verse 14. This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and then he goes on. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, what does that mean? It sounds a little bit like what John is saying is that you know, whatever we ask of God, he's gonna give to us. You know, you need a new car, you need a job, you need to be healed from an illness, ask God and you got it. Like God's kind of a a, a genie or, you know, a cosmic vending machine. You know, you just plug in the coins and out comes the candy bar. And some people see God that way, you know, as just one who exists to just dispense gifts in response to requests. But that can't be what John means. I mean, we all know what it's like to not have prayer answered. Everybody in this room knows what that's like. That's common. And we even see it in the scriptures, you know. Paul had a thorn in his flesh in his flesh and asked for that to be removed. And what did God say? He said, "No." Even Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane requested that this cup be removed from him and the father said no. So if Jesus can have prayers answered in the negative, certainly that can happen for Christians as well. So I I don't think we can uh, interpret this as meaning that God is just gonna give us whatever we ask. So what is he saying? And I, I think the emphasis on God hearing is the key to understanding these few verses. At the end of verse 14, look, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's the the confidence that we have. The confidence that we're heard. And if we know that he hears us, if we know that, that God's listening and has received our request, we know we have received the request. It's almost like what John is saying is knowing that God has heard is a reward in itself. That that in itself is really what we want and long for, and that is something that God promises is always the case. Now, 
I know that probably sounds like a very small consolation to you, particularly if you've had a history of praying to God and asking for things and those prayers have not been answered and it's been disappointing to you. But let me illustrate what I think John is saying by telling a story. <clears throat> I mentioned Virginia Yip in my prayer, and again, uh, going to China to teach in Chengdu. Virginia Yip, I met her because she is my translator. So when I teach in this seminary, Virginia comes alongside uh, and translates for the Chinese students. And it's been a blessing to get to know Virginia. She was here, actually, about a year ago at, at the church. And uh, just a, a godly woman with a great eagerness for evangelism. And she told me this story about how she had made a relationship with a living Buddha in China. So that's the way Buddhism operates. There are leaders of the faith, and they're, they're called Buddhas. And so she calls him a living Buddha. And this living Buddha was talking to Virginia and wanted to know how can I be qualified to pray to your God? That's what he said to Virginia. How can I be qualified to pray to your God? And the reason why he asked that is because he understood that prayer is a very serious thing, and he was concerned that if he tried to pray to this God, the Christian God, in the wrong way, that it might get him in trouble, that this God would be displeased with his prayer and, and might inflict some kind of punishment or something on him. And so Virginia's answer to this question was this. She said, I totally understand what you're saying because God is a great and mighty being, but as a Christian, we pray to our God as a father through Jesus and what he has done. We see him as a father, and that allows us to come to him knowing that we've been accepted and to pray to him without being afraid of whether we're doing it right or whether we're going to mess up and not be heard. We have this great confidence in knowing God in this way. And Virginia said in response to that, this living Buddha started to weep. He'd never heard anything like that. A God that I can enter into his presence without fear? I can talk to him and know that he hears me? To him that was mind-blowing. And what Virginia said in response to this, this was what she said to me uh, personally, she said, most Christians don't realize the privilege of being on speaking terms with the Almighty. Christians, you are on speaking terms with God, the creator of all things, the Almighty Lord. That is an amazing, tremendous privilege that we very often overlook. And we live in a very consumeristic culture that tells us that we should get what we want, and we get mad at God when we don't get what we want. But what John here is saying is that there is something very sweet and rewarding in knowing that God hears us. So that's the first thing he says here. People who have eternal life are assured of their salvation, and that leads to a confidence to pray. But he goes on and talks about the social responsibility for prayer, and we see that starting in verse 16. And John says this, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin. So, all right, now he's thinking about prayer in the context of the church. So this is one of the social tests that he's been saying, and he's kind of applying this um, with regard to prayer. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, some key words there, if anyone sees, that means any of you can do this. 
you know, it's not up to the pastor to do all the praying or up to the, the, the priest. You know, if anyone among the church sees a brother committing a sin, and I think that word sees is even significant. So what John seems to be talking about is observable public sins. This is not talking about judging a person's heart, trying to figure out the workings of a person's heart and praying in that respect. But if a brother, someone in the church, has committed a sin that has been seen, then anyone, his brothers and sisters, can then ask, can pray to God, and God will give him life. So there's this responsibility that we have to be prayerful on behalf of our brothers and sisters. Now, John goes on to make this peculiar kind of distinction in verses 16 and 17 uh, between the sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead to death. So what is going on here? What, what does John mean by this? Well, let's look at this sin that leads to death, first of all. That's right in the middle of verse 16. After he encourages us to pray for the one who uh, is seen sinning, he says there is a sin that leads to death. Do you see that? Right in the middle of verse 16. So a lot of people have you know, written a lot and talked a lot about what, what this means. Some people think that maybe it's a, a sin that leads to immediate physical death. Like there are some sins that you can commit that will just cause God to just you know, snuff you out right on the spot. And you know, that has happened, right? Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira sinned against God and they died, both of them right there. So it's not like that's impossible. That can happen. But I don't think that's what John is talking about here because when he talks about life-death, it's always in a spiritual context. Throughout this whole letter, always spiritual. I just don't see how he would jump to physical death uh, in this particular passage. So I think we get a clue as to what John means. If we just back up to verse 12, we covered this in the sermon last week, but look what John says in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So what John is saying here is that if you, if you don't have the Son, if your faith is not resting in the Son of God, you don't have life. And that can only mean that you are spiritually dead, that you have death. That spiritual death is the spiritual state to which you belong if you don't have the Son. So what John had been saying in verses 6 through 12 is that Jesus has come by water in his baptism, the beginning of his earthly ministry, but he has also come through blood. That is, his ministry finished and culminated in the giving of his life on the cross. And what John is saying is that's essential to who Jesus is. If you reject that, if you don't accept that Jesus is God in the flesh who's come to live for us and has died for us on the cross, if you don't accept that, you have committed a sin that leads to death. Now, that, that can be repented of, but if that's something that is your position right now, that's describing you. The sin that leads to death. Rejecting God's sole and only provision and offer for salvation. If you reject that, there is no other future state for you than death. John goes on. At the end of verse 16, and he says this, I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, what does that mean? 
Very peculiar also. I do not say that one should pray for that. I don't think what John is saying is for the person who has committed the sin that leads to death, don't pray for that person. That's not what he's saying. I think what he's saying is I'm not saying that right here in what I'm writing. That's not my point is what he's saying. That's not what I'm dealing with right now. We can talk about that another time, but I'm talking about praying for the person who has committed a sin that does not lead to death. That's, that's what I'm after. And so you can see, um, well, okay, let, let's just consider what that means. So you get that? The sin that leads to death is just, is just rejecting Jesus as God's only provision for the forgiveness of your sins. That will lead to death. But the other phrase is the sin that does not lead to death. We see that verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. So I think what John means by this is the sin that a Christian commits. John's been telling us that if you believe in the Son of God, you have assurance that you have eternal life. We have eternal life, but that doesn't mean that we don't sin. Eternal life belongs to us forever. As Felix said at the start of the service, it can't be taken from us. We have eternal life, but that doesn't mean we're sinless. Remember what John said at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 8, if anyone says he is without sin, he deceives himself. The truth is not in him. So we can't say we don't have sin, but we can say we have eternal life. And so what John is talking about is the Christian who commits a sin that does not lead to death. In other words, that sin is not going to send him to hell because he has eternal life. And that eternal life cannot be revoked. And that's what John has in mind. People in the church, people who are believers in Christ, who have fallen into sin, he is calling us and exhorting us to devote ourselves to prayer for those people. Now, the conclusion that we might draw from that, or that someone might draw from that, is, well, if I can commit a sin and I have eternal life and it won't lead to death, maybe sin's not that big of a deal. And so, what does he say in verse 17? He anticipates that. All wrongdoing is sin, he says. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to minimize, you know, sinning against God or wrongdoing. It's, it's all sin. It's all serious. Even if you're a Christian and you're committing sin, it's serious. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. There is a sin that's not going to send you to hell if you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior. I, I think that's what John is trying to get through to us here in this kind of difficult passage. Sin that leads to death, rejecting Christ, which can only land you in hell, but the sin that does not lead to death, the sin that we all fall into regularly as Christians. But thank God we're not threatened with hell because eternal life is ours. So by way of application, I just want to ask you, do your prayers, friends, reflect a concern for the church, for your brothers and sisters? Is there a corporate social element to your prayers? I mean, are you always praying just for your own individual needs, which is certainly appropriate, but is that the limit of your prayers? Or are you praying for your brothers and sisters? You know, we have an opportunity to get together and pray Sunday mornings, 9.15 to 10.15, every Sunday through the summer, we're gathering to pray for one another and for our church. And it would be a great opportunity to put into practice what John is telling us here, and I would encourage you all to come. Sundays at 9.15 a.m. Remember, friends, you're on speaking terms with the Almighty. Are you taking advantage of that? Are you confident to pray? That's the first thing. The first mark of assurance 
confident to pray. Secondly, those with assurance are a contrast to the world. Now, this gets to the moral diagnostic test. And what John shows us here is a contrast between the believer and the world. So look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God, there's that phrase again, born of God. We've looked at that repeatedly. Born of God is just being born again, the new birth by the Holy Spirit, being regenerated by the Spirit, being a new creature in Christ, the true Christian who has been born of God. And what John says is that the person who is born of God does not keep on sinning. Does not keep on sinning. There's a moral test here. Am I one who sins without any remorse? I think the word keep on is what is really key here. This is not saying that the one born of God never sins. It says the one born of God cannot fall into an ongoing, unrepentant pattern of sin over a period of time. Chapter 3, verse 4, John describes it as making a practice of sinning. That's indulging in sin, no remorse, no intent uh, for repentance. That, that's, that's a person who's not a Christian, or at least not bearing the fruit of genuine saving faith. The Christian is the person who, as soon as he or she realizes that there's sin in his or her life or confronted, says, you know, i got to stop doing this. I, I've got to take some steps to resolve this. I'm not going to keep on sinning. doesn't mean you never sin, but you don't persist in it, is what John is saying. Uh, but then John answers this question, like, why is that? By whose power can we repent of sin and turn from it and not keep on sinning? And look what he says in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. Okay, now this is confusing again, because he just talked about being born of God, which is a reference to the Christian, but when he says, he who was born of God protects him, I think he's talking about Jesus in that case. Jesus being born physically in a manger, which we celebrate every Christmas, the second person of the Trinity being born as a human being. That's what John has in mind in that verse. He who was born of God, Jesus Christ, protects him who has been born again by the Spirit, and the evil one does not touch him. What, what this is, is a wonderful description of the security of the believer, that there is no way for a true Christian to be lost or to be turned away, to have his or her salvation revoked. That, that's an impossibility. That will not happen. There is wonderful security in the gospel. The promise that a true Christian can never be lost. Here's what um, Jesus says in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. They can't be snatched out of my hand. They can't be snatched out of the Father's hand. What greater statement of security can we have? And that's the idea that John is picking up on here in verse 18. He who is born of God, the Christ, protects him. You are protected. 
I mean, isn't that, that wonderful that, you know, you're going to sin, you're going to fall away, your heart's going to grow cold, your prayer life is going to be inconsistent, you're not going to be reading your Bible that much, but, but you know, you, you, you're bothered by that, you want to do better, but you find you're always failing, you're in that struggle, and the good news of the gospel is that God is so much more committed to you than you are to him. He is so much more committed to protecting you than you are even to protect yourself. And that's what John is, is telling us here. Very helpful, by the way. A lot of people say, ah, when you talk about eternal security or once saved, always saved, you know, those terms aren't always so helpful because they give wrong impressions. And sometimes people say, well, if that's the case, then I can just do whatever I want. If I can't lose my salvation, I'll just live however I want. No. Okay. Read the text. <laughs> Look what it says. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. The, the person who has eternal life doesn't do that. God protects and preserves, yes. And then the one who is preserved will not keep on sinning. So that, that's the description of the believer. But the contrast here is between the believer and the world. And, and so we see John's description of the world here also. He says, um, again, verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world, that word lies, it's like the whole world is just resting comfortably. The whole world is asleep in the arms of the devil. That's what he's saying. The devil can't even touch you with his finger, but the whole world is asleep in the devil's arms. That's the contrast. That's the difference between the believer and the world. And what John is setting up here is this contrast. What he's saying is, you, Christian, who are assured of eternal life, you're different. You're not like the world. You are called to live a life that is set in contrast to the way the world lives. You are distinct. You stick out. You are to be recognized for being different. You are not to be transformed by the pattern of the world. Why is it that the church, it seems to me, sometimes just so much wants the approval of the world? Wants so much the world to think we're so cool and hip and up-to-date and contemporary. Why do we want the approval of the world when the world is asleep in the arms of the devil? Personally, individually, friends, the way you entertain yourself, the way you spend your money, the way you act on social media, the way you raise your children, the way you approach sexuality, the way you do business, all of those things should set a contrast and distinction from the way the world does things. Uh, J.C. Ryle says this, many Christians have too much religion to be happy in the world and too much world to be happy in their religion. <laughs> and I wonder if that describes us on some occasions. There are a contrast to the world, those who have eternal life, the moral test. And then lastly, they are also committed to the truth. They are committed to the truth. This is the mark of the person with true assurance. Now we get to the end of the letter here, and it ends in a very odd way, doesn't it? Just out of the blue, he says, keep yourselves from idols. <laughs> it just seems like, what? Where did that come from? It just seems like such a disconnect, doesn't it? Keep yourselves from idols. And then it's just, it's just over. Um, 
actually, I think that this is a really wonderful and appropriate summary of this whole book because now we think of this third test, the doctrinal test, and I think that's what John has in mind. What he's been trying to communicate to us through this whole letter is who the real, true Jesus is. He is God in the flesh, the one come in the flesh, the one who's come through water, the one who has come through blood. There is a, a Messiah presented to us on the pages of Scripture that uh, is, embodies certain characteristics and has done certain things, and it's not up to us to decide whether we uh, like that or not. There's an objective presentation of who Jesus is, and so what John is saying here when he talks about an idol is, is not... Um, you know, not a, an object or something that we might worship. He, he's talking about any belief or conception of God that is contrary to that which is presented to us on the pages of Scripture. Anything different than what John has been telling us about who Jesus is. If you worship that thing, you reject what the Scripture says and come up in your own mind with some idea about how you want God to be, that's an idol. And what John is saying is keep yourself from that because that's false religion. It's like he ends this book as a way of setting forth a challenge to all of us. Who are you going to believe? The true God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ or the false God of your vain imagination? Which is it going to be? I mean, there's this emphasis on truth. If you look at verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Do you see what John is doing here? He's saying Christianity is the truth, the absolute truth, a truth in distinction from falsehoods and idols. The thing we hear in our culture all the time about there being many roads up the mountain, many different approaches to God, John would rigorously and vehemently oppose that. John is the same one who quoted Jesus as saying this, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The one assured of eternal life is committed to this. We are not people who say, yeah, just do the best you can and whatever religion you follow, good for you. No, we don't say that. There is one true God. Do you see that, what he says? He is the true God, Jesus Christ, the true God. Not just one option among many. And by presenting this command, keep yourself from idols, the challenge, he's laying down the gauntlet. Are you going to accept that or not? Are you going to accept that or not? Well, I feel the need to close. Um, from, <clears throat> from this series, I, I hope, friends, that, that you can see that, that you don't have to walk through life wondering and worrying about whether God loves you, about whether your sins can be forgiven, about whether you're going to heaven, you don't have to wonder about that. I mean, that's the biggest question that faces you in this life. To have that resolved is really a sweet and good thing. <laughs> to not have to worry about that is a really good thing. And that's what this letter is about. That's what John wants you to know. 
You can know, friends. It's not presumptuous or arrogant to say that you know you have eternal life. That's not an arrogant thing. Because you're not saying, I've got eternal life because I'm such a great person. You're not saying that. You're saying, I have eternal life because the Scriptures tell me that I do. That's why. And because Jesus has done everything necessary to get me there. It is not me. It's Him. But I humble myself and believe what He's told me in His Word. This doesn't mean that you can know everything, but you can know the most important things. And that's what 1 John is communicating to us. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. That's the one who has assurance of eternal life. Let's pray, and then we'll stand and sing. God in heaven, um, we praise you for 1 John. We praise you for your servant John and the way your spirit has worked in him to present these words of eternal life to us. Would you give us confidence and assurance and hope in the declaration of your word, O God? Give us grateful hearts and help us to glorify and please you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.